and find your way back to your seats. Welcome this morning. Some of you are like, who is this guy who just stood up here? So many new faces. Um, my name is Gray. I am a pastor at this church, if you didn't know. I've been so for the past seven years or so, and um, been hiding away downtown. And so if we haven't met yet, and I, there's a lot of you I haven't met, uh, I'd love to meet you today. My, my wife is here as well today. Becca, she's sitting down here. I didn't tell her I would sing her out. Hopefully that coffee and water is good there, babe. And my son, uh, one of my sons is in here with us as well. He has the sniffles, so we didn't put him in kids' ministry. You were welcome. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I'm the pastor of our downtown congregation. We're one church in two locations, and just simply thrilled to be here this morning uh, with you. And um, you know, we really feel such a strong bond to you uh, still. And I know we haven't uh, done as much switching as we had planned to, Scott and I, uh, with in terms of preaching and being in each other's uh, locations. But we're going to commit to doing that more this year. So you'll probably see me a little bit more uh, this year. Um, but Scott asked me to give you an update on downtown and on our building in particular. If you were at the most recent congregational meeting, um, I, I believe that you guys were told that we were looking at a building prospect for us to land in long term. And um, the, the truth is, all those negotiations have gone well. And we're looking at, on February 23rd, to vote to purchase a building downtown. Um, yeah. So if all goes well, and I just um, I want to tell you a little bit of that story because this is our fourth location as a church. We've been a church plant for six years. Uh, now, I've only been down there for three of those six years, uh, but for the last three years, we've hopped around lots of different places, and it, it does get old after a while to be setting up and tearing down, and there's a little bit of a feeling of, you know, it, will this kind of go on forever and be in this kind of in-between place forever? And and so we've been praying for a spot for a long time, for years actually, praying and fasting, especially during the season of Lent. We focus on that and like, where, where would you have us long term so we can really bless this city in the downtown area? And uh, just to give you a feel for how that search looks for me, the, the main problem of finding space downtown is, uh, is parking. So here's exactly how I would look for potential spaces for us to meet. I would look where the parking lots were and then see what buildings were around there. <laughs> Like, that's literally how we did it. And uh, there was one parking lot in particular that was connected to a church that for the last couple of years, I would, every couple of months, pull into that parking lot at 18th Street and Osborne, and I would pray, God, if it be your will, give us this church building. And that went on for a couple of years, a number of times, four or five times, I would pull into that spot and pray for it. And then eventually I got connected to the pastor of Valley Bible Church, which is the church at that location and asked if we could potentially rent space from them. And um, I got a uh, heck no, you know, at first. And then uh, over time, that became a no. And then over time, that became a probably not. And then it became a maybe. And then it became a probably so. And then it became a yes. And then it became we will just put everything aside, and you can use any classroom you want, any space you want, uh, as much parking as you want, put a sign on the building. I mean, everything was just laid out for us, and it was just God's provision for us that he's done that. And that was a year ago. We launched on Easter Sunday in this old pink church at 18th Street in Osborne, and our plumbing went out on Easter Sunday. Some of you were there. Uh, we didn't have bathrooms for a month. 
And, um, and so we suffered through that persecution. When you encounter various trials, Scripture says, right, of the plumbing variety, those do happen. Um, and for this last year, we've been meeting there and it's growing this relationship. And when we saw an email that they were selling up, they were trying to sell off uh, the south lot. There's a lot that's to the south of the church that the church also owns. They were going to try to sell that to maintain their ministry, their Valley Bible Church. We asked in faith and in prayer to, for a sit-down with them to ask whether there would be another arrangement that they would be amenable to. And sure enough, when we get there, we realize that they're ready to talk about selling this building to us. And not only that, over the weeks as we discuss, they're willing even to become the bank for us and finance the purchase of this building and take on the note themselves and spread it out over 30 years um, so that they can continue on as a church in that, in that building as well. But the ownership would go to us. And so that is the story that God has done. And so we are looking at a season of, of, uh, of raising funds for down payment for that and also uh, for the complete renovation so that we can have plumbing forever in that building and never have to worry about it. Um, and, uh, and so we're about to start that vision series, a capital campaign downtown, so that we can, can do that. And we're hoping that on Easter Sunday we'll celebrate the purchase of a building one year from when we moved in. And the symmetry of this is amazing. So we just give God all the praise and glory for, for this. Yeah. Thank you. While you, still, you might still have your phone out from registering for First Wednesdays, if you would like to be on our updates of, of what's going on, you can pray for us. Uh, you can just email me, gray, G-R-A-Y, at newvalleychurch.org, and just put add me in the subject line, and I will add you to the list where you can receive updates on what we're doing with the, with the building. And uh, you will also be voting, uh, since we are one church, you'll be voting on that purchase. So, vote yes. Um, <laughs> All right, enough coercion. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 13. It's in your bulletin as well. Just three, four simple verses this morning, but a profoundly important story for our faith. Mark chapter 10, verse 13 through 16. Let's read this together. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. So if you didn't know, uh, Paul Simon, still making music. Um, so for those of you young enough, you don't know who Paul Simon is, Simon and Garfunkel, look it up. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Paul Simon, he's, very, he's old now, he's still got it. Uh, voice still sounds really good. He came out with an album a couple years ago called Stranger to Stranger. And on that album, there is a song called Wristband. And uh, I remember listening to that album, and then I, I was listening to a podcast that, was, that he was the guest on, Paul Simon was the guest, and uh, he was talking about a songwriting process in his 70s or whatever, however old he is, and, and, um, and he talked about this song, Wristband. 
and he told the story of how he, he wrote this song. And so here's the story. He was at a concert venue. He was getting ready to do a show. The show was about to start in a few minutes. He steps outside, uh, in the words of the song, to breathe some nicotine. Infer what you will. Um, and so he steps outside the back, and the door shuts behind him. And it's one of those concert venues, like most of them, they have an auto-shutting door. And he hears the click of the door behind him, and he realizes he's been locked out, and after beating on the door, nobody answers, and so he realizes he's going to have to walk around to the front of the building. And so he walks around to the front of the building. This is just a few minutes before the show starts, and he tries to get in, and a security guard who's about six foot five steps in front of him and says, I'm sorry, sir. You can't go in here. And he said, what do you mean I can't go in here? And he said, sir, you have to have a wristband. And he points to all the people that are coming in who have wristbands, who have paid to get into the show. He said, if you don't have a wristband, you can't come in through the door. And so Paul Simon has to, has to talk to this guy and tell him, I don't need a wristband. I'm the show. Like, I'm the reason why these other people have wristbands. Uh, you don't get it. I, if I don't get in, I get in by definition, right? Because this is my show. And the security guard has to be convinced of it. And then so he writes this song, Wristband. you got to have the wristband or you can't get through the door. And what he, what he means by the song is, as it develops, is he talks about all the different credentials that we have. We, we have these wristbands, these, these, uh, these things that we've earned or these privileges or these things that we can buy that get us through the door, the proverbial door, to whatever it is that we need to see or experience. Well, the disciples in this passage are the bouncers, and they have surrounded Jesus. And there are people who are bringing their children to Jesus. And the disciples are saying, I'm sorry, you've got to have a wristband. You can't come in and see Jesus. And Jesus has to stand up and speak to them and say, no, they're the show. They get in to see me by definition. In fact, you have a lot to learn from them. If, if they can't get in, then you don't have a chance of getting in to see me because they have something you need. And it's a reminder to us, like the wristband song, I mean, we, we are so used to standards and credentials and access as a culture. We say, you know, Everything has to have credentials, right? To, to, to get a certain job, you have to have certain credentials. You have to have the certain wristband. To get a mortgage, you have to apply for that mortgage and be approved for the mortgage. Even to get into some groups or even Facebook groups, you've got to prove certain things. And so you, have, you get the status and then you're granted access through the door. And so it's natural for us when we come to a relationship with God, we think, what are the things that he requires of me? What wristband do I need to come in and see him? What, what do I need? Because if we know something about who God is, it's got to be big, right? His, he's holy. He is good, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, our catechism says. In his being are wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, truth, this God 
is so far beyond us. Certainly to come into his presence, you would need something substantial. He must have some hoops for us to jump through. I want to talk about that this morning. So a couple of questions to get us there. And the questions are this. What does Jesus require? And what do I require? What does Jesus require of people? And what do I require of people? So the first question is this. What does Jesus require? And the simplest way to put it in this passage is he requires us to approach him like children. That's what he says in verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Well, there's, there's your wristband. You can't come into the kingdom of God unless you are like what? A child. That is the way that you have to be to approach him. What does he require? He requires us to be like children. And what does that mean? Well, let's look at the scene here. So these people are bringing their children to Jesus, verse 13. They're bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So this is like an established practice of having someone touch your children in order to bless them. Oftentimes fathers did it. Rabbis would touch children to to bless them. And so the disciples, they rebuke these people who are coming up, undoubtedly, just like the security card in our story, thinking that they were doing a favor or doing their job the right way. And so they rebuke these parents. And we don't know what their rebuke is. Probably something like, I mean, have you seen Jesus' itinerary today? I mean, he is, he's got healings, you know, at 9 o'clock. He's, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's bringing someone into the kingdom later. Like, we don't have time for children right now. So did Jesus appreciate their being a bouncer? He didn't. It says, in fact, in verse 14, that he was indignant at them. Indignant. Only occurrence of that word in Scripture. It's actually a double word. It's a hyphenated word. And so if we translate it literally, it would say this. He was much grieved. He was much grieved. The, the disciples were rebuking these people. They don't know how far Jesus is saying they are off by hindering these from coming to me. Because they're coming as children, and they have the credentials to come to me. What are those credentials? The credentials for coming to Jesus are this, to know you are frail and to believe that he loves you. To know that you're frail and to believe that he loves you. Those are the credentials of coming to Jesus. You have to know that you're frail. You have to be frail before him as these children were. Jesus always welcomes the frail people. You see who he hangs out with, who he spends time with. He spends time with the frail of society. Someone who is outside of the normal credentials, you might say. The Pharisees could not come to him. He rebuffed them because of their, their self-righteousness. But the tax collectors and the sinners and the women of the night and the children, he welcomed immediately. Anyone that needed help. In fact, almost all, I think all of the children in Mark's gospel are sick, except for these kids here. He's always helping children. It's always the, the priority. He welcomes them. He loves them. This is true of us as well. We love children, don't we? Even though often, like the disciples, we try to hold them away from 
from certain things. But why do we love children? Do we love them because they're cute? This will be not the only controversial thing I'll say today. But we don't love them because they're cute because not all of them are. I said it. Mine are. Yours are, right? It's those other people's kids that aren't necessarily cute. Um, no, we don't just love them because they're cute. It's, it's clearly because they make our lives easier. Of course not. Is it because they really help us out around the house and are uh, useful to us? I mean, maybe if we were in the Industrial Revolution, you know, or like we're on a farm or something, um, and we had enough kids, they would help. But even still, if that were the case, that wouldn't describe why we love them. We love them because they are frail and they're ours. Their frailty is, is bound up in our love. Let me prove this to you. Let's say, just as a thought experiment, that human beings gave birth to live young who were seven feet tall. And came out looking like bodybuilders, and we had a microchip to put in, like, full intelligence into them. I mean, do you love children still? No, of course not. It's when they come out, they're eight pounds, they're just, you know, some of them are, they're just so tiny, they're frail. That's our first impulse to love. It's more of like compassion than love at that point. And, of course, they develop personalities, and we grow to love those things as well. But the first impulse is towards their frailty, and because they're our responsibility. And so the goal of parenting, we could sum it up, is, is, to, is to let them know those two things. Hey, you're frail and I love you. I mean, that's what we're doing when we correct them, right? We say, you're frail. Stay away from jumping on that. Move away from that swimming pool. Don't go into that place. You're frail, we're telling them. You're frail. You're not as strong as you think you are. You haven't developed enough to see how much in danger you are. But if we're good parents, we're seeking to be good parents, we're not just reminding them of their frailty, are we? We're reminding them that even though they're frail, and in some ways because they are frail, we love them. If that's the goal of our parenting, and we, as the Scripture says, who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more does the Father know us as frail beings and love us? So he says, come to me as children. Come to me. What does it mean to come to Jesus? A couple of things to note here. What he says, he says, coming to Jesus is the same thing as coming into the kingdom of God. He equates those two things. Verse 14 says that, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see what he does there? He says, coming to me is the same thing as coming into the kingdom of God. And so when we come to God, it means that we must come to Jesus. What does that look mean? It means both something right now and something for the future. In fact, he tells us that, that it's both now and later. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom, present tense, shall not enter it later. What does he mean? He means there's something about the kingdom of God now when you 
come to Jesus, you receive him, you get a new life now, but there's also something later where you enter into a kingdom of God. They're both true. It means that you're blessed by him now and you have a future with God. Who gets that? What credentials do you need? It's the same for everyone. To know that you are frail and to believe that he loves you. To come to him in your frailty and to believe, despite what you may have rising up inside of you that objects, that he loves you. At some point, we... Stop considering ourselves those children who are in his arms. And we decide that we're grown up enough to be disciples who need to protect Jesus and guard him from other people. And so I want to ask this question as well. Not just what does Jesus require, but what do I require of people? Do I hinder people from coming to Jesus? And, (laughs) just a reminder of being Presbyterian this morning a little bit, we're going to talk about children, because that's the most obvious application of this, right? Do we hinder children from coming to Jesus? What would that even mean? And I understand that there will not be a uniform opinion about this this morning, that many of you, some of you, will disagree and disagree strongly with me, and that's okay this morning. This is a open place for sure. But we believe in our tradition that the sacraments are the way that we experience Jesus. It's not just a mere empty reminder when we come to the Lord's table or we see a baptism. It's not just like, oh yeah, that happened. It's we believe that the Holy Spirit is here to feed us and nourish us in the faith, that he actually communicates Christ to us. And so, The sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the place that we come and experience Jesus. We come into his arms. And this passage is often referenced in discussions about baptism and whether children should be baptized. And our Baptist friends, those who believe that, that all people should make a profession of faith before you are baptized, will often point out that this passage does not have any water in it. Right, The children are coming to Jesus, and he receives them, but he doesn't baptize them, so how can we talk about this as a baptism text? And that's true, that there is no water here, but let's be fair, there's no water anywhere in the Gospels. Tons of people are coming to Jesus, making professions of faith, following him as disciples. Baptism comes later, after Jesus' death. Romans chapter 6 says we're baptized into his death. So the baptism of Jesus and the baptism of John is something different in Scripture. But when we're baptized into his death later, we see that happen all the time in the book of Acts, where the word goes out and people receive and they come to Jesus and they're baptized. And in the cases where there's families, they and their families are baptized, Cornelius and Lydia and the Philippian jailer and others. And what's interesting is that it seems to refer to this passage when those, when those baptisms are happening because it uses the same word, hinder. Let the little children do not, come to me and do not hinder them. That's a very rare word in Scripture, but it's used later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 for the baptism of the eunuch. It says, what would hinder me from being baptized right now? And then later, 
Peter says about Cornelius, what would hinder, what would prevent water from being used to baptize him now? It's okay if you don't believe that or, or trust that, but, but you're not kind of left without something to think about, even if you reject that. You're not out of the woods yet. Let's say that all people, children included, should be baptized when they believe. When will you know if they believe? What are the credentials? This is just an application question to ask yourself. There are Christians who have fallen on either side of this faithfully. But just so you can wrestle with this, what credentials are you using for yourself or for your kids for them to come to faith? If you think about it, are they the same ones that Jesus has? Are you waiting on them to be a certain age? Are you waiting on them to reach a certain level of maturity? Maybe you have an intangible thing. Like maybe when they like obey me more. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It might. Are you waiting for them to sin big so that then they can repent big? Are you waiting for them to have a crisis of faith so that then they can undo their crisis of faith and then you can know that their faith is genuine? Because many are having a crisis of faith and many are not coming back. What, is, what are the credentials for baptism, for belief? Are you sure they're the same as Jesus? We would say in our tradition know that there's some disagreement about this, and many faithfully have. We would say the best way to think about it is that the entrance for a child is the belief of their parents because the parents are bringing these children to Jesus. It's not the child's volition that's bringing them to come to Jesus. It's they're coming in their parents' arms. And so when we teach our kids the Lord's Prayer, we say, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven, not potentially your father who is in heaven. We don't hold it out as that possibility. Now, is our faith, mine and Becca's, sufficient for our children's? Of course not. Of course not. Every child, every person who has faith in Jesus Christ must profess that faith verbally, believe in their hearts, confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. And when that happens in our tradition, we bring them to the table. And we say, as an elders, we look at their profession of faith. And we wrestle with these things, not age. We're actually forbidden from setting an age. We say, do they understand the gospel? Like the child in Deuteronomy chapter 6 who says, what do, you, what do we mean by this Passover? What do we mean when we rehearse the story of redemption? When the child says, what do we mean by this? We look and we say, what are the credentials of faith? Do they know that they're frail, that they're sinners? Do they believe that Jesus loves them enough that he would go to the cross for them and die? Do, we, do they know those things? Then we don't hinder them from coming to the table. We welcome them into the arms of Jesus. There's a final way that we hinder kids, just to put the foot on the accelerator a little more, by not discipling them. We keep them 
away from Jesus by acting like this is not the most interesting thing or the most important thing to prioritize our faith. And our, our country is in crisis when it comes to faith. Everybody knows this. Our country, America, is getting older and fewer in Christians. There are other parts of the world where Christianity is growing younger and bigger. But here it's growing older and smaller. And that would not be possible if we were not losing our children. And I want to be so careful here because I know, I know, and this is true of my own family, that faithfulness does not always mean that your children follow the Lord. Please hear me say that. You can disciple your children well. You can grow them up in the faith, and they can still walk away. That absolutely happens all the time. But I want to speak to those of us who have young children and just say, we have to disciple them. And this is a big problem. Because as important as evangelism is, and it's vitally important, it doesn't hold a candle to what we could do by having children who believe in terms of the numbers of our faith in this country. Let's say starting today, just another thought experiment. No more people came to faith in Jesus who are adults. Evangelism was dead. But the trade-off was we got to keep all of our children. Well, Christians have more children on average than non-Christians do. Only in a couple of generations would this country be more primarily Christian again? I'm not saying that should happen or anything. I'm just saying, think about the power of, of Israel in the Old Testament. They, they brought people in. Rahab came in from the outside. Ruth came in from the outside, yes, and those were in the line of Christ. But think about how they grew in numbers because they fulfilled this mandate that God had given them to grow up their children in the faith. Our kids need more of Christ from us. And this church has an amazing kids' ministry. I mean, Megan, Caleb, you guys are incredible. Like, so blessed to have this team here. But our kids need more than a good Sunday ministry for our kids. They need more. They need us to disciple them. Parents. They need more than a couple of mountaintop experiences. They need more of Scripture. They need to see that gathered worship is not an optional thing, something that is valued and prized by you. They need to see, most of all, that your faith is not a game to you. It's, it's real to you. It's important to you. How do we do that? How do we begin to do that? I say this in reference to a lot of things. Um, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, when it comes to making sure you have a date night for your marriage, like all kinds of things. But here's the phrase, commit to the practice, not the system. So many people say, I, I don't know how to do those things because they haven't figured out what the system is. I don't know where we're going to go on that date night. I don't know which chapter of the Bible I should read first. I don't know when it comes to discipling my kids where to even begin. Well, if you commit to the practice, then the system will follow. The practice means this is when it's happening. This is when it's happening, not another time. And then after a couple of times of not knowing what you're going to do, you're going to find a system that works for you. Trust me. Do we hinder our kids? It's an honest question I think we need to wrestle with, and I know that people will fall in different places on that, but are you wrestling with that? Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. Do we hinder them? 
there's another person that you might be hindering. Not your kids, but yourself. You guys seen those um, AT&T commercials? Just okay is not okay. You guys seen those? Just okay is not okay. And there's a scene of some professional, maybe a doctor who looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. And the patient is like, ah, I don't know what, you know, if I should trust this guy. And AT&T says, just okay is not okay. Or a skydiving instructor. <laughs> or whatever it is, the most serious things. And it seems like the person doesn't know what they're doing. They don't have good credentials. You say, just okay is not okay. Well, I've been watching football with my sons and didn't realize they were, they were soaking that up. And um, recently we got a puppy as well. And, um, and so we have this Vigla puppy. And, um, and we take him to the vet. And Vigla is kind of a weird, you know, so it's a rare breed. And, um, and so we take him to the, to the vet for the first time. And there's like an intern there, young girl. Uh, she's sweet, but, you know, she's clearly new. And, uh, and she's like, she's looking at our puppy, and she's like, what kind of dog is that? You know, and I'm like, oh, you're supposed to be taking care of a dog. You don't know what kind of dog it is. Um, great. You know, and so we're on the drive home from the vet's office, and um, one of my sons says to me, Dad, what did you think about that vet? Because uh, he was there with me. And uh, I said, you know, I, I thought it was a little weird, honestly, that uh, the person who's supposed to be taking care of our dog doesn't know what kind of dog it is. And he said, just okay is not okay. <laughs> so used to standards. What are the credentials? And when you think about the circle around Jesus and who you would hinder, perhaps the answer is you pretty much leave yourself outside of that circle. Why? Because you're just okay. Or maybe you're worse than okay. Maybe you really feel like there's no way that he would take me into his arms. I don't deserve that. I haven't done enough for that. My life doesn't look anything like what it should look like. And so I don't think that I have the ability to be with him. I need to clean it up. I need to deserve him. I need to grow up a little bit. I need to mature before I come to him. Let me just read to you again verse 16 as we close. He says, He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. The people came to Jesus for a touch. Like the woman who had an issue of blood, all she wanted to do was touch him. And then Jesus, after he heals her, turns and gives his full attention to her. And the same thing happens here. They come for a touch, but Jesus takes them in his arms. He lays his hands on them and he blesses them. He goes way beyond what they were asking for, reassuring them that they belong there. What are the credentials for you to come to Jesus? You must know that you're frail and believe that he loves you. But if you're saying, I don't belong in the circle, guess what? You have the first one down already. You know that you're frail. 
But do you believe that He loves you? Do you believe that His embrace is for you? These children did nothing for Jesus, and He did everything for them, all the way to the cross. And I'm just thinking as a parent myself, you know, if I had to choose between a child who I knew that they knew they were loved. I mean, this child knows that they're loved, and yet they're pretty disobedient all the time. If I was choosing between that and a child that I was pretty sure was going to obey me but lived in terror of me, I would choose the first every time. Why? Because the relationship always comes first. There is a relationship between obedience, of course, obedience and faith and the relationship. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I'm not separating the two. I want my children to both know they're loved and to obey me, of course. But I want them to know how loved they are first. How do you grow up? How do you advance spiritually? How do you come into maturity? You don't do so by believing you can do better, committing that you will do better, by having a long streak of obedience. You mature by returning to his arms of blessing over and over again. I know I'm frail but I am believing that you love me despite my frailty. That's the gospel. You belong in this circle. You belong in his arms. If you know that you're frail, you admit to that, and you believe that he loves you, then you are here to be blessed by him this morning. Let's pray.